Looking for a new career? Welcome to Do HVAC Training Service Center in North Charleston. Enroll today in our comprehensive HVAC training hands-on field experience-based program covering troubleshooting, maintenance, installation, and more on various HVAC systems and ductwork. We offer EPA and NAIC preparation and testing along with various certifications. Enjoy payment options. Achieve certification in under five months. Enroll now for your new journey of skill development and career advancement. Log on to DEWHVACTRAININGSC.COM to inquire. Mother's Day is coming, and if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with Drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, far, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. What's up, everyone? This is Tim, and welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals podcast. If this is your first time listening, thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to our podcast. On this episode, I interviewed Melinda Hale. Now, Melinda is kind of a big deal. I'm not going to lie. She is an all-star. She is a uh, musician, very successful in that space. She has her own podcast called the We Need to Talk podcast. She has her own production studio called the Black Voices Heard Project, and she does so much. So it was really an honor to have her on. Um, we talked about a ton of things, how she grew up, what it's like being a black woman in white evangelical spaces. Of course, we got into um, racism and how that affected um, how she experienced the world. And of course, how can we do better as white evangelicals to be allies of the black community? This is really a great episode. Melinda is brilliant. She's so um, just well thought out. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. So I hope that you do. That being said, hey, pretty big news. Since September of last year, we've been trying to desperately fundraise to get to a point where we have $6,500 a month in monthly income guaranteed. That allows us to take care of really all of our expenses, uh, our overhead, our subscriptions, um, my salary, etc. I'm happy to announce that as of this recording, we are only $200 away from meeting that goal. What a relief, friends. I'm just being transparent with you. There have been many times where I thought to myself, oh my God, I hope that we make it this month. I hope that 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 we get enough donations so I can pay myself um, because I have two kids. I have a wife. I live in New Jersey. It's expensive here. So you know, finances, like I'm sure many of you, um, are, are on my mind because we know the economy, inflation's out of control. Um, wages are stagnant. So I just want to say a sincere thank you to all of you who donate and keep this show and really our entire um, organization going. We are completely grassroots based. We don't get large donations. It's all a bunch of small monthly donations or one-time donations. If you are able to give and you want to, you can click on the uh, link in our show notes and you can do it there. We are totally a registered nonprofit in the States, so everything that you give is tax deductible. Now, maybe you're someone who, like me, right? Your finances are very thin. You're not able to give. I get it. If you're able just to promote, just to share the podcast, share our content, that would be such a huge help. And of course, if you can take 30 whole seconds and do me a favor and just rate and review the podcast, that also helps us out. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Mad Priest Coffee. Let me be honest, friends, and transparent right off the bat. I freaking love this company. I've actually met Mike before. He's the owner of Mad Priest Coffee. We got lunch when he was in town randomly one day. I love everything they're doing. It's ethically sourced. It's locally owned. It's deliciously tasting. And the branding is freaking great. Friends, you can buy a tote bag that says, I kissed shit coffee goodbye. Come on. We all know what that's riffing off of, and it's freaking brilliant. On top of that, they are currently launching a Get Mad campaign to end Christian nationalism. Wait, Tim, are you telling me that you have found a local coffee brand that is ethically sourced, that treats their employees right, that is trying to end Christian nationalism, that is socially minded and is hilarious in branding? Yes, friends, that's exactly what I'm telling you. And it gets even better. If you go to getmad.coffee, 
and you buy anything on that webpage, and in the checkout offer code section, you put in TNE20, you will get 20% off your order. Come on, it gets no better than that. I drink this coffee, I love this coffee, I love what they're doing, it's great, great stuff. So again, that's getmad.coffee, anything on that on that webpage, you purchase it, you put in the offer code checkout section thingamahoozie, TNE20, you get 20% off your order. Go check them out. Thanks, guys, for being a sponsor of the episode and of the podcast. It is awesome. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Melinda Hale. Hope you enjoy it. Well, Melinda Hale, it's been a long time coming. I mean, we it talked has. about this, well, I think a few months ago. Yeah, it's just at the beginning of the year for sure. But you're a busy person. I'm a busy person. I think I actually ghosted you last time, to be honest, to be transparent with the community. You didn't ghost me. You told me that you had to cancel. So I don't think that counts as ghosting. All right. It's kind of in the middle. <laughs> 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 anyway, it's great to have you on. Oh, Thanks thank for making you. the time. I I, remember, I know that you told me that your toddler is sick today. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's, it's she's. It's so weird because this is her first like fever. This is the oh. first time she's been sick. She's had like a little cold before, but like I started taking her to like music classes and then like gym classes and then being yeah. around kids. So it's kind of inevitable, and it just hit her all of a sudden. And she's fine though, but she's just so cranky. Yeah. She's yes. so cranky, and toddlers already have like this, oh, like yes. rage that's already bubbling at the surface. They like, really do. It's crazy. Like if they hear the word no, something's getting thrown, right? Yes. <laughs> Our two-year-old yesterday hit a new octave in 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 in, in on, on the range of screams. I was like, yeah. "Whoa, demon yeah. child!" Like, where did yeah. I mean? Are, are you okay? So yeah, I understand. I, I think I posted that like a month ago and I was like, oh, there's that high pitched scream <laughs> that uh, eventually accompanies every toddler tantrum. <laughs> I've been waiting for you. Like it finally showed up. Now, are you an anxious parent when your child gets sick? Because I, the first few times was very like worked up. My wife is very calm, but I was like, is he okay? Is this something super serious? So how are you when, when, when your daughter got sick? Oh, I'm actually completely fine. I'm very, very calm, very gentle parent. And my, my husband is too. I think just for me, I worked with kids pretty much my whole life until I became a full-time musician and stuff. So I have been around sick kids before. I was a nanny, I was a babysitter. So it's nothing new for me. I just feel bad because they're so helpless. And there's not much you can do other than like giving them Motrin to kind of make them feel better, but it just has to... You know, just go off. It gets to go I, away on its own. So That's all you can do <laughs> yeah. and survive the crankiness. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And well, there's that boundary yeah. of giving them what they want so they feel good, but also still kind of disciplining, but like not being too mean because they're right. sick. Like, <laughs> right. You don't want to reinforce off. negative behaviors, right? right. But, right. <laughs> but right. also your child's oh, screaming, man. you know? So, yeah. Yes. Well, you know, solidarity <laughs> in the parent category, my friend. Yes. Because I, yes. I feel that. <laughs> Um, it is great to have you on. You know, I think I discovered you on Instagram at some point and I was like, oh, this is great. And then I think we followed each other. And then we, I probably, knowing how I operate, I probably messaged you in the DMs like, hey, love your work. Cause I, I like doing that with other creators because it kind of creates like, yeah. that connection and we just kind of hit it off. So it's been yeah. great. And now, I mean, I'm, I'm going to blow your spot if you don't mind. You're actually a mod in our Facebook community on top I of that. Am, wow. I am. Wow. So cool. So, <laughs> I, you know, you and I haven't really talked on this level before, but I'm, I am kind of curious, who who is Melinda? Like, how did you grow up? I know that you're a full-time musician, living mm-hmm. that dream. I mean, congratulations. Yeah. But how did you get from, you know, how, how did you get there as, as, as a full-time musician? What What's that story of Melinda? Yeah, for sure. I, so I grew up in Santa Barbara, California. I don't know okay. if you know where Santa Barbara is. It's, I, I it's, just know California is way west of me, being in New Jersey. <laughs> Yes, it is very much. <laughs> yes, it's a small little beach town in, in Southern California, very small. And um, I just grew up doing music. My dad was a musician. My grandmother on my mom's side was a singer as well. And I grew up singing in the church. I grew up in an AME church, which is African Methodist Episcopal Church. It's one of the only historical black churches in Santa Barbara. I'm one of the only black churches, but it is historic because Santa Barbara is aggressively white. There's no really 
other way to describe it. Um, and I grew up doing music in the church and then doing musical theater. And then I went to school for um, vocal performance, emphasis in classical singing and a minor in musical theater. And then once I graduated from college, I just always knew what I wanted to do. So I just kind of hit the ground running after that. So you grew up in the AME, American Methodist Episcopalian Church. African Methodist sorry. Episcopal. Uh, I, I wrote down the wrong thing. You're right. African Episcopal. Wait, say it one more time. I'm sorry. It's okay. African Methodist Episcopal Church. Okay. Sorry. I don't know. Just I know. It's a lot. Here. American, it's a lot. right? Uh, okay. So what? what is that tradition? Because I'm not very familiar with it myself. I don't even think I can really explain to you what it is. I just always called it. I went, I go to a black church. Like, and I know that sounds so funny, but like, that's how I described it, you know, because growing up, I didn't really have an understanding of like denominations and everything. I just knew we went to church. I believed in God and Jesus was my homeboy. Right. Like that's like kind of what the theology was. I was very, very lucky actually to grow up in a pretty progressive liberal space. So that was always sort of my understanding like we just it was a very much family community oriented we always had cookouts and like did bible study and like vacation bible school but it was really really fun and then when i got to college i went to azusa pacific university which i later found out was a very conservative evangelical christian school so that was a culture shock for me because that's not how i grew up in terms of how people viewed things and how they talked about things and how they used Bible verses every other sentence. Like it was just very, <laughs> very different. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, AME Church was just very, very loving, very accepting and fun. That's that's the easiest way to describe what my church upbringing was. So give me this culture shock in college. I'm kind of curious, right? So you, because obviously when you grow up, as a child, whatever you are in is just what you accept as normal for everyone, right? Absolutely. Like I grew up in fundamentalist spaces, so I just assumed like, oh, you're homeschooled. This is, you know, if you're a yeah. Christian, this is what you believe. So yeah. so you're in this space, right? And then you move to a college that's way more conservative. What are some of like the things that kind of stuck out to you right away of like, oh, this is way different than what I was used to? Well, first and foremost, music. I grew up in a gospel church with an organ, right? That yes. was the main thing. And so yes. I go and they're leading worship with an acoustic guitar. And I was like, what is this? <laughs> okay, Long so Jesus hair, thing. sandals, <laughs> you know. Right. I also grew up with the associate pastor being a woman. Oh. And that was like a huge thing at the college because I think my junior year, they decided to like be really progressive as they say and they brought in a woman pastor to be uh, um, an associate pastor and people had an issue with it and I was like what's the problem like I was so the one that was like asking the questions because I had no idea this was an issue they're like right. oh, we just don't think that women should be leading blah 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 and I was like that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard I was like I grew up with the woman pastor right right so that was another thing also LGBTQ, like that was a huge thing that I had no idea was an issue. I grew up around a lot of people in the LGBTQ community and I didn't even know there was like a name for the community. I just knew that like, you know, for example, my mom's best friend, Jonathan, he was gay. He had a partner that was just normal to me. Right. And I'm very, very lucky that I grew up like that and why I have the mindset that I do because I was exposed to it, which is probably why so many people are ignorant when it comes to those things, because they aren't exposed to it at a very young age and it's not normal to them. So a lot of um, views regarding the LGBTQ community and like hearing about conversion therapy for the first time, hearing about, you know, pray the gay away for the first Mm -hmm. time. I was just like, this is ridiculous, right? And I would get into so many arguments with people because I just didn't understand. And the only thing that they could ever go back to me were certain, you know, obviously the clobber passages in the Bible. And I was like, okay, that's all you have though. That's the only (laughs) excuse that you have for why this is wrong. So it was, it was an interesting experience. And then obviously being a a black female going to a predominantly white school as well, even though I grew up in a predominantly white community, it was interesting to see how they viewed me in that space. And I always joke about this, but I feel like because I grew up in Santa Barbara and at the the time my parents moved to Beverly Hills, they definitely thought I was going to be like a Candace Owens. And they found out very quickly I was not. So (laughs) that, Mm, you know, it was that kind of uh, atmosphere. Interesting. So one question I was I have kind of because you mentioned something that stuck out to me. You mentioned that like when you heard the clobber verses, you know, that were 
you know, kind of what evangelicals use as proof texts to prove that being queer is sinful. To you, yeah. you were like, oh, that's all you have. Now, to me, I was brought up being taught that, like, no, what the Bible says is the word of God, no answers yeah. or buts. So for you, though, it sounds like you had a different view of the Bible regarding, like, how you were taught. So how were you taught, like, to, to see the Bible as being Christian, and I'm sure seeing it highly, and maybe even authoritative in some ways, but also being yeah. able to say, like, well, that's ridiculous, those few verses, it wouldn't make any sense. How, how, how does that work for you? No, that that's a great question, and I feel like my mom's answer would be, I just always questioned it since I was five, mm. and I will give you this example. When I, I was a very early reader, I skipped a grade, I was very advanced for my age, and mm. I was asked to read the Bible verse for, the scripture verse for that Sunday, and I remember reading it, and I was like, why does it only say he in the Bible? And so I just started, when I would read in church, I would say he or she, and then I would keep reading. And I was five doing this, wow. right? So my mom was like, you were just always that personality that would challenge and questioned. And, you know, I wasn't taught critical thinking. I was just kind of born with it. So for me, as wow. I grew into my understanding of you know, believing in the word of God and wanting to live like Jesus, it truly was a lot simpler than I felt even the church I grew up with was making it. And so when I got to college and was having these conversations, I was just like, why is everybody making this so complicated? Like, why aren't we just supposed to love each other? Like, mm -hmm. I don't understand why we're having these conversations. Like the Bible's archaic. That's always, people would get so mad at me when I would say it. Like, sorry guys, like this is a really old book that maybe some things don't really apply anymore, right? Like no, there's no floods happening. The, the sea's not being parted right now. Like, can we <laughs> figure out how to make this apply to, you know, the, t the 2000s? So that's just, it's hard to answer that because from my understanding of growing up, I've just always kind of been that way. Interesting. Yeah, it's really helpful. So I'm assuming that I mean maybe I'm wrong. I'm gonna make I'm gonna make an assumption here. But did you ever have like a moment of deconstruction in the way that we experience it now in the circles that you and I kind of run in, where it's like I have to rethink my faith because it sounds like you grew up pretty progressive, and a lot of us who are again, for lack of, of, of a better term, who are deconstructing, we tend to deconstruct and become more progressive in both yeah. our theology and our in, in our politics and beliefs. But it sounds like you were kind of there already. So did you ever have that that moment for you? I people that listen, if they've heard me on other podcasts, I say this every single time. I went into Azusa Pacific liberal and I came out super, super liberal. So that was my deconstruction time. <laughs> so, so they didn't really convert you to a more conservative view. No, they made me be like, I do not want to be like you. <laughs> See, that did. is interesting because I know that I think there's like a, and I'm not a psychologist, you know, people out there. So any psychologist out there is probably going to be like yelling at, at the screen, uh, you know, at, at their speakers. But I'm under the impression that like at certain points in life, you either have to, you know, find new beliefs or you, you kind of double down on the beliefs that you have. Yeah. I actually have friends who were more progressive, who are now more conservative and I'm yeah, the same. opposite. So same. for you though, you never found some of the major sticking points of more conservative theology and politics convincing for you. Is that kind of correct? No, not at all. Even to, I mean, even to this day and I'll listen to them and I'll hear them and try to understand because I, I'm fully one of those people that I'd love to have conversations with people that I don't necessarily agree with and I want to sure, hear what yeah. their points are, right? Right, right. But no, nobody has has swayed me in the opposite direction in any way, shape, or form. So what you're not saying is that you're not Candace Owens 2.0. Yeah. <laughs> I am not Candace okay. Owens 2.0. Just want to clarify for the record. But I would love to have a conversation with her. I truly would. <laughs> she is one of the few people that I don't know if I could. Um, I thought about it. I've watched a lot of her stuff. You know what it is, I think, honestly, between you and me and the audience, I guess. But I found that people in that world, they're, they, they, they have, they're really fluent in talking points. And so... You, you really can't get beyond their talking points. And because they have them memorized, they can just throw whatever stats they have at you in your face. It's hard to have an actual dialogue. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I do think that, I don't know, if Candace Owens ever reached out, I, I, I would go 50-50 personally. I'd be like, mm, I got to flip a coin and see, you know, which way I'm going to go on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I get it. But there's, and this is going to sound very strange to you and a lot of uh, your, your listeners, I'm sure. I actually have a soft spot for her because... I have empathy for the type of black person that she is, having been 
a black woman that grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood that was constantly told that I wasn't really black, constantly said, told like, oh, you sound educated for a black girl and hearing all of those types, that type of rhetoric that I can see how she became who she is because she didn't have other like-minded black people around her to tell her it's okay to be that version of black. And I think that if she had that, she may not have ended up on this vile, horrible side because it's one thing to just be conservative, but she's gone down a really, really dark path. And I think she just felt like that's what she had to do. And I don't think anybody's ever had that conversation with her. And I would be the type of person that would have the grace and the empathy to want to sit down with her and, and dive deep into that. Okay, if you're comfortable, I kind of want to unpack some of that because yeah, you know, obviously you and I have had very different life experiences. For sure. I think it's really important here that, you know, again, if you're comfortable, we kind of unpack some of this. So you mentioned that that being a black woman in America, you've been told a lot of things that sound very dehumanizing, such yeah. as, oh, you sound educated for a black woman, uh, things like that. Um, unpack that. Like, like, like what is... what. Put that in like, in like the context of your life. I mean, what was it like growing up? How often were you told things like that? I mean, how how often was that in your life? Often, wow. honestly. Wow. And, um, you know, for me, my mom's an educator. Um, my dad only finished high school, but he was very, very big on education and wanting my sister and I to have a better life. So that was just the household that I grew up in. Yeah. My mom, I mean... We were always in school and I'm grateful for her now, but at the time I was like, woman, I just want to go like play <laughs> like with my friends. She's like, you got to read this book and then you can go have your summertime or we're doing the summer reading program at the library or you're doing this workbook. Like my mom was an educator. She has her master's in, in you know, English and she was a teacher. She's a counselor. Like that was just what her background was. So we were always freaking in school, but I'm grateful for it now. But yeah. So because of that, we were very educated. She was very much on, you know, always present yourself in the best light. You do the work. It doesn't matter what people think of you as long as you know that you are striving to achieve something, right? So for me, I was always kind of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? I guess um, viewed as a different kind of black person to a lot of the people that I grew up with in Santa Barbara because majority of people had this negative perception of what blackness was. And you look on the television, you know, that's all that they would show you, right? Is a black person's getting arrested or in a TV show, a black person is ghetto or whatever. There's a, they're a gang person or whatever. That was what the perception of blackness was for a lot of people. So when they would talk to me, it'd be like, oh, well, you don't seem black. It's like, but what does that mean? You know what I mean? Right. You know, what is black to you? Why can there not be different versions of blackness? You don't sound like a white person from Texas, but I'm supposed to sound like every black person that you've ever seen, right? So there, it was always that type of um, verbiage and, and those types of conversations. And I had to get to the point where it's like, I don't sound white. People would say, I sound white. It's like, no, I sound educated. There's a difference. And when you say that, you're stripping an entire community of people of being able to be educated. And you're also making education synonymous with whiteness. And that was a huge problem for me growing up. So it was, I mean, I had it even throughout college, you know, and even into my adult years, right? As, you know, people are becoming more quote unquote woke now, but uh -huh. there's still some slip ups on occasion. But it was a very, very common thing that I heard. And at the time, I didn't have language for microaggressions. And I didn't know what that was. I just kind of took it and, and listened and didn't really fight back because then internally, I always had that fear that if I did speak back or, or talk back to somebody that I would get pinned as the angry black woman then. So it was like this catch 22 of like, I can't really stand up for myself because then I'll fall into the stereotype that you are saying that I don't fit into anyway. Right. So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yep. So, yep. I, you know, I got to say it has to be exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> Has to be fucking exhausting. Yeah. How's that? Is that better? <laughs> I'm just being honest. You know no, I mean? absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I think about the very few times I've had someone call me misogynistic or something, you know? And like, it's only happened like th maybe three times in my entire life. And that wears on me. And I'm a white privileged evangelical, you know, in the, in, in the greatest society that privileges white men the most probably anywhere. Yeah. And, and, and that has stuck with me, let alone not being that position and being told over and over 
again, oh, you don't fit these really harmful stereotypes that I have in my head. Uh, right. You know, and you're supposed to say, thank you so much. You know, when in reality you want yeah, to say, not, take a, a hike. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. It's not right. a compliment at all. Yeah. Wow. Oh, man. That's fascinating. And I, so how would you define like microaggression? I hear this term a lot. And, you know, as, as I'm trying to unpack and just trying to also do my own work of decolonizing myself as best as I can, I hear this term often. Is a microaggression when someone says something that they think is being nice but really is backhanded? Is that like what a microaggression can be? One thousand percent. Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. Or even just little comments like, for example, let's take black hair. Right. Okay, yeah. Even making comments about hair like, oh, like this is so different or like a black name like, oh, that's that's such a weird name. Like, uh, where is that from? It's just like, why do you need to make that comment? Right. And it's a microaggression right. because you're also thinking that something that's different to you is not normal for that other person because right. you think that everybody has to assimilate and, and be on the same level as what has been deemed as normal, which is, as we know, whiteness in this country, right? right. So if, 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 for example, you know, the actor um, Uzo Aduba, who was on um, Orange is the New Black, right? Okay. I don't know if you know who that actress is. Anyways, I don't. she gave this beautiful uh, interview with, uh, I think it was on Ellen, I believe, but she was saying that her mom was the one that told her if they can learn Tchaikovsky, if they can learn Bach, if they can learn those names, they can learn to say Uzo Aduba and you shouldn't have any shame for it, right? Mm. Or they shouldn't make you feel like it's a weird name. Yeah. And I think that so often when you have a different name that either has some cultural significance to it or just because you want it to be different, we feel that we're afraid of that and we have to feel shame because it's not what's normal to other people. When people should just accept everybody's differences, whether it's name, whether it's hair, how you dress or how you talk, you know? Yeah. So, you know, I'm kind of curious to kind of get your thoughts on what are... Obviously, I deal in the white evangelical deconstruction space, but I grew up in white evangelicalism. I grew up in fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. I know that, that you didn't grow up that way, but you kind of got a, a, a healthy dose of it in college. And I feel Good like four we, years. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like a lot of our worlds kind of overlap now on social media and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You know, what are some of your thoughts from, from, from your vantage point on what you're seeing in white evangelicalism, um, you know, regarding especially with like, you know, I just feel like 2016 for me was such a turning point of like, oh my God, this is way worse than I thought. But also mm. I was the one in the bubble. So I never had that outside perspective, right? And I have other friends who are like, dude, I've been trying to tell you this for like decades, yeah. right? I'm kind of yeah. curious to get, get your thoughts on some of this stuff, like how you've seen white evangelicalism maybe shift over the years. It's, it, I don't, gosh, I definitely feel probably around the same time that you did is when I, took a step back and was like, well, this is bad. Mm. This is just bad, right? Right, right. But it really, really started to hit me during the pandemic that I'm like, yo, Christians out here have a bad rap. <laughs> like, <laughs> they just have a bad rap. Yeah. And I, I, I already feel like I have to defend so much of my identity. Like, I don't want to have to defend calling myself a Christian either. Like, y'all are ruining <laughs> this for all of us. Right, right, right. I did. I, I even asked on Twitter, like, when you hear the word Christian, what do you what do you think? And so many people just had so many negative things to say, and that's heartbreaking to me. Yeah. It's heartbreaking to me, and I can only imagine Jesus is like, really, like, what WTF, right? Like, right. this is what you're doing in my name. I just, I don't. I do, unfortunately, have negative view. Um, of evangelicalism and Christianity as a whole right now, despite me calling myself a Christian. Yeah. And I don't really know how to change that because I think even with the positives of the deconstruction movement, it kind of just pushes those even, some of the evangelicals, I shouldn't say most, some of the evangelicals even further into the depths of where they are, are and they think that the people that are deconstructing and actually trying to do good are the bad people. And it's just so bizarre to me. I just don't, I honestly don't even know how we got here. Truthfully, I don't. It's just yeah. like all of a sudden being a Christian was a negative thing and, it, and it, they tethered themselves to a group of people that are just about nationalism, white supremacy, and hating others. And it's this weird unity of hate. And I don't get it. Like, why are you unified by who you hate and who you're judging? Why are you not trying to be unified by who you love? It right. makes absolutely no sense to me. 
there definitely is a, a hostility, I think, among many white evangelicals towards things like deconstruction or, you know, even terms like progressive or Democrat. Yeah. And it is interesting to watch how, and I, again, as someone who grew up in it and also now watches it, I've been in both inside and outside the bubble. And there really is um, a mechanism that's really efficient in taking terms and redefining them and then convincing people this is what it means. Mm. Um, you know, and that happens with, with the term deconstruction, that happened with yeah. the term progressive, that happens, with, that happens with the term Democrat or whatever else you want to call it. Um, they, 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 they see the term, they redefine it, they paint the picture of this is how it is for everyone. And the people who follow those circles or who are who are who are in those circles believe the leaders and go, okay, deconstruction is when you just abandon your faith and you just want to sin more and you just because just it's sexy and you know, and CRT is demonic and it's not compatible with the gospel, right? Like like, like yeah. they just believe the talking points inside the bubble. That's what makes the bubble so powerful. Yeah. The problem is once you're outside of it, you realize how cult-like so much of it is, right? It's so narrow. It doesn't really allow for honest dialogue. You can only progress mentally so far before you hit the wall and you have to stay there. And I think that's why so many people, especially a lot of white evangelicals who are outside, are so loud online because they're like, you don't get it. I was, I was one of the brainwashed. I was one of the ones indoctrinated, you know, and I'm, yeah. I'm kind of mad, but also this is crazy. Yeah. So I think yeah, that's yeah. really part of it as well. Yeah. There, I mean, evangelicals, I will say are experts at branding and rebranding. They made Jesus white. I mean, right, for how right. long, right? Seriously. That's the most incredible thing to me. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So let's let's talk about music for a bit because you're a yeah. musician. I'm a yeah. musician. I mean, you know, I don't want to nerd out too much because I don't know how much of our audience plays or doesn't play. But so so you um well what I know I know that obviously you sing. Do you play any other instruments? Yeah, I play piano. I play piano since I was seven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah. are you mostly a solo artist? Do you have a band behind you? Also, can I be your drummer? I mean, what? Um anyway, uh yeah, East so Coast about tour, that? yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh yeah, I mean my my music background is is really really vast i am a solo artist but i have a backing band i don't actually ever play for shows because i just like to focus on one thing and sure. i don't know how people that are solo artists do that because something <laughs> always suffers when i accompany myself it's either my singer or it's gonna be my playing something's gonna suffer so hats to those that are able to do both excellently at the same time but i yeah i mean i've performed all over the world, truthfully. And I, I love it. And when I started out doing music, I was definitely doing more like the pop thing and then doing more of the R&B thing. And then I just decided I just want to do whatever I want. Like, I just want to record whatever I want, write whatever I want. But definitely in 2016, which I feel like was a big turning point for a lot of people, yeah. that's when I'm, the content of my music started to take a different route. And I started writing more social justice, more inspirational songs. So one of the first songs that I wrote in 2016 is a song called We Run. And it was specifically about the Black Lives Matter movement, but just what my perspective of being Black in America is. And then from then on, I wrote a song, song called Story, which is about the homeless community in Los Angeles. I wrote a song called Real Love about the LGBTQ community. I wrote a song called Falling about LGBTQ teen suicide. And it's just kind of progressed from there. And that's really where my heart has, has um, stayed, just writing that type of music. Because as a musician, you know, like music changes people and it's a universal language. And it's such a great way to get a message across in a way that is beyond having a long conversation on social media and only being able to get 140 characters in and not arguing, just like, hey, listen to this song to hear this perspective. And I've been very successful in getting people to understand where I come from and how I feel um, through my music. And I just think that that's what music should be used for, especially nowadays. If you have a message, if you stand for something and you're a musician, that's that's what you should be doing. Use your platform in that way to do some good. So that's what I've just been trying to do with music. That's the sound of me prepping the grill with Reynolds Wrap. And the sound of me not doing dishes. And the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. Mother's Day is coming, and if you don't get mom the perfect gift, she won't be angry, just disappointed. So go with drinks from Drizzly, the go-to app for alcohol delivery. Send favorites near, bar, or to wherever the moms in your life are. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get the best drinks to the best moms and plenty of time for Mother's Day. 
Ding dong, it's Drizzly. Must be 21 plus. Not available in all locations. How, how, how do you keep, you know, for you, what does faith look like? Um, you know, I, I can imagine, um, I'll put it this way. If, if on my end as a white evangelical male who really had no context for real racism in America, watching the video of Ahmaud Arbery being lynched, you know, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, um, completely shifted my perspective forever. I mean, mm. that, that really was like the beginning of me waking up, you know, late, but waking up and saying something is way wrong. Um, for you, you know, um, being someone who's obviously been attuned to this much longer than I have, because you've been the recipient of so much of that racism in your life. Yeah. How, how, what's your faith? How does it function um, in 2022, you know, predominantly white American evangelicalism? Yeah. I mean, I think like with anybody, faith has different, you know, moments. It, it's there. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes I'm cursing at God. Sometimes I'm yeah. like, oh my God, thank you. Right. You know, like it's just, it, it yeah. comes in waves, but I, I think I'm just so rooted in my faith and my personal relationship with God that I don't think that that will really ever falter. And I think how I've chosen to live my life, I've just ha- I have faith in what Jesus taught and how he lived his life. And I do the best I possibly can to try to emulate that with what I give back to the world and what I give back to people. So my faith really doesn't it gets challenged often, but I think because I have such a strong foundation that it will never really go. It just will kind of be in waves whether how strong it is at any given time. Well, from my very limited reading of like James Cone and some others, mm-hmm. it seems mm-hmm. like, especially in black liberation theology, there's actually a great source of um, comfort um, in a weird way that as Jim Cohen talks about, you know, some of his writings um, that, you know, like in the cross and the lynching tree, he kind of compares, um, you know, this idea of crucifixion and just like yeah. of suffering and, and how, at least in his context, how he finds in a strange way, hope knowing that, that, that he is, is, is suffering with Christ, so to speak, or, or that Christ suffered yes. with, with him. And so is that kind of, you know, for you, is that part of also what, what, what grounds you is knowing that as like the suffering servant, so to speak, you know, I guess we could put it that way, you know, that, that there's certainly a connection there. Absolutely. I was going to actually bring up that parallel of just Jesus's life trajectory and also just the black community and and also why a lot of black people are very rooted in their faith and their Christianity as well. It absolutely is just an example of what Jesus went through. So we're like, hey, we were persecuted. We went through all of this, but we're going to rise again and we're always going to have joy. And I think that that does bring a lot of comfort and we just you know, keep going. So I, yeah, I completely agree with that. Absolutely. I think I'm kind of reflecting in this moment on how, for me, again, just growing up in a place of privilege, it's probably easy for me to quote unquote lose my faith because it's never, I never had to really rely on it for much mm. in like a suffering mm. way. You know, I've kind of yeah. been pretty coddled, you know, like yeah. pretty successful, never not had food on the table, never experienced, you know, blatant oppression or even microaggressions yeah. really as a white man um, or even, or, or had a history like, like uh, a connection, right, to an ancestry of, hey, you know, like you're great, whoever, you know, grandpa, aunt, uncle, you know, had this happen to them. And so I wonder if in a really weird way, I'm, I'm, I'm flushing this out in real time, okay? So I love I, it. Just, just bear with me. But I'm wondering if, if like for a lot of us in the white deconstruction space, we have to be aware of, of, of even the privilege of being able to not have to rely on the faith sometimes because we never had to really, you know, it was never, it, it, it never, it was never relied upon for for real suffering in that kind of context. Now, I'm not saying everyone, I'm not saying people don't have their struggles, but I'm saying for me, at least, I reflect personally. I just wonder if like even deconstruction can kind of be seen as privilege. Does that make sense? No, that that does make sense. But even as you were talking, I was thinking a couple of things. One, Christianity was, you know, given to slaves by the slave masters as a way to control them. Right slaves turned it around as a way of comfort and joy to get them, you know, out of that situation. So it's interesting to flip it on the script in that way. But also, as you were talking about the privilege of not really having a hardship, I think that's actually one of the biggest reasons why so many evangelicals aren't able to get on the social justice train, because they don't know how to have empathy because they haven't been through anything. I think that's a huge part of it. I think that's important because I, I remember reading uh, James Cone mentions that in Black Power and um, in Black Theology, where he says that like for people to stand with the oppressed means that they have to get the sting of oppression. 
<laughs> and like, how do you do that when you haven't? Yeah. Right. And he kind of, I remember reading it. I was like, I'm kind of shook by that, honestly. Yeah. You know, I never thought about that before. Yeah. But I think you're right because I think about a lot of like the rhetoric we hear from like the Charlie Kirks of the world, right? This idea of, oh, if you just want a better job, just go find one. Oh, if you just want, you know, if you just want this, just go do it. Making it seem like all people, the reason why people, you know, are in poverty is because they just want to be right. impoverished. They're just too lazy, right? Typical tropes yeah. that really have yeah. a long, ugly history yeah. of dehumanization, yeah. especially towards the black community. And also uh, some poor working whites as well, but mainly towards the black community. And I think about how that's really correct. Like there is no empathy for people who think that I made it on my own, right? Like, oh, well, I've worked hard. Yeah, but you're still dependent upon the other systems and other people that give you the work, uh, your, yeah. your, 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 your socioeconomic location, you know? The fact, that, you know, if you were able to get a loan for your business versus someone who wasn't able to, all those things play a role, but they have convinced themselves that they did it all on their own yeah. and therefore everyone else should follow the same trajectory. Yeah. And, and th there's another thing that, uh, that I can follow up with in regards yeah. to that when it comes to the black community, it's again, another catch 22. And this is something that I also dealt with growing up in a predominantly white um, community. For example, they give you that speech that, Hey, we're everybody's equal. Uh, all you have to do is work hard and you'll get what you want. Right? So I do the work. I work hard, but the minute I get it, then the only reason I got it was because I'm black and it's diversity or they have to fill a quota. So there's really no scenario where a black person can actually achieve something because they actually did the work and deserve to get that accolade. So it's a very unfair system that it's set up to make people fail. So when people from poverty do rise out of poverty, it's like, oh, well, you just got a handout or something. It's like, well, no, I actually did the work. Or I achieved this. Well, it, you know, you and I'm saying so. It's it's yes. very very frustrating. It's very frustrating. But I got that so many times in, in high school. And like I was, the, I, I've talked about this before. I was the second highest achieving student in my high school in terms of rewards and scholarships and and all of that. So many of that that talk of like, well, you only got that because you were black. It's like no, I got it because I worked hard and because my mom didn't let me play in the summer. <laughs> 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 right. I had no summer break. <laughs> well, it, 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 again, it goes back to the idea, damn it if you do, damn it if, if you don't, because if you didn't succeed, it's because, well, you're just lazy, right? But yes. if you do succeed, now it's, well, because you got a handout. Like 100%. There is, there is no way, unless you're one of the rare Beyonce's of the world, right, who break through, which is such a rarity for anyone, doesn't matter what color right. you are, the idea right. of becoming a Jim Carrey or whoever is so implausible. So rare. Right. Yeah. But, but then they use those people as like, well, see, if so-and-so did it, then why can't you? Exactly. And so there's exactly. really no way to win in that scenario because either you, either you got a handout or, 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 or you're without your consent fitting into a stereotype that is incredibly racist and dehumanizing. Yeah. It's, it's funny also, like one of my favorite examples that people use in terms of like the black excellence, it's like LeBron. It's like LeBron is six, seven. He's not normal in any situation. It's, that's a horrible example. Like, right. you can't, like, well, LeBron, no, he, no, right. <laughs> he's right. a horrible example. I just, I hear that crap all the time. It's so frustrating. Well, and it's also a repeating cycle too, because you think about how whiteness has directly impoverished the black community, right? You think about how redlining has affected how communities are formed. You think about how low wages impact that. You think about, about the, uh, the, the mass incarceration and yeah. war on drugs, right? That has yeah. literally taken fathers out of the home, Yes. And put them in prison. And then what do you hear? Oh, look, the problem isn't any of this stuff. It's because dads aren't around. Yeah, but who yeah. imprisoned them? Right. So, like, it, again, it's 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 really interesting, again, just processing in the moment with you of how whiteness is such a cruel double-edged sword because it creates the conditions, right? By and large, there's always exceptions to any rule for any demographic. It doesn't matter who you are, but by yeah. and large, whiteness creates these conditions. Right, and then blames the people in those conditions for the conditions that whiteness created. Absolutely. Absolutely. Couldn't have said it better. Absolutely. That's frustrating. It's beyond frustrating. Right. It's beyond frustrating. Oh, and my they don't want to take they don't want to have to admit that because there's this part of them that thinks if they own up to that fact and then start allowing everything to be equal and equitable, that they're gonna somehow lose something rather than just letting everybody have a seat at the table. I, I just don't understand that, especially when it comes to evangelical Christians. Why totally. wouldn't you want everybody 
to be able to sit at the table, especially if that's what Jesus would do, would invite every single person to the table. That's what you should be doing. But I have to agree. I think that's why it's so frustrating to see such a, a, a massive resistance to any kind of terminology in white spaces, evangelical spaces like social justice or equitable um, or, or, or uh, equity or you know whatever it is. And and again, watching the machine in play, they've now taken the term CRT and have made it really a catch-all for anything I don't like that is social justice-minded. Even yeah. though critical race theory, up until like two years ago, three years ago, was an obscure legal theory that yeah. can't. That no Allie, one even knew about. Allie and now they're didn't just know what arms. CRT was. You know, like they had yeah. no clue. And all of a sudden, that's become the new catch-all for anything anti-racist is now CRT, which is therefore Marxism, which is therefore communism, which is therefore you know atheism. And you know, here here we go, yeah. kind of down the line. Yeah, and the funny thing about all of these CRT arguments, like one of the main ones that you hear is like, well, we don't want, you know, our white kids being told that basically they're the devil, they're <laughs> racist, and they should feel bad about da 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 But at no point in those conversations do they ever address how children of color feel having to know what their family's history is. And I mean, like for me, growing up in Santa Barbara, being the only black person in my class and have everybody look at me during black history month. Like it was so uncomfortable, but my feelings were never taken into consideration, right. but it's only caring about white kids worrying that they're going to feel guilt. They're going to be made to feel bad, but you don't think about how children of color feel uncomfortable seeing pictures of their ancestors having been whipped and beaten and knowing that they were viewed as less than human. Not that long ago, by the way, people need to stop acting like slavery was thousands of years ago. Cause it wasn't right. And Jim Crow was only a few decades ago. You know, yeah. I mean, it, this yeah. is this is like 60s, this is 50s, this is not that long ago. And of course, the preservation of, of fighting school desegregation from white evangelicals, that's 60s and 70s. The private in my parents' school, lifetime. Right. In my exactly. parents, and they're still alive. Exactly. They went Exa through that. That's and exactly that's what right. I, and like, it drives me crazy when I see so all these pictures that are like in black and white purposefully, <laughs> you know, they try to make it seem like it's so much longer, so much long time ago. And it wasn't, it was in my parents' lifetime. They went through all of that. Like I interviewed my dad not too long ago for this project that I've been working on. And he just broke down crying because he has so much trauma right. left over. I mean, my dad's 77, right? Just think about all that he went through and he grew up in Mississippi. Wow. Like, and there's so much that he he won't ever share with me because it's too painful to talk about. But that's in my parents' lifetime. Right. And people don't realize how recent it was. I mean, I'm my, my husband's white. I'm in an interracial relationship, right? Mm. That was illegal. How like 57 years ago. I mean, Bob Jones overturned their ban on interracial dating in 2001. That's insane. Okay. I was like 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And people are acting like we're so far removed from all of these issues, and we're not. Right, right. No, I totally agree. And unfortunately, what we're seeing is white evangelicals at the helm of pushing and resisting healthy, needed conversations and repentance to start changing yeah. things. It is yeah. frustrating to see how so many evangelicals are so big on like personal repentance. You know, if you if you have a sexual thought the wrong way, you have to go repent. If you curse, you have to go repent, whatever. But when it comes to like, you know, legitimate trauma and also being part of a tradition that has enacted mass trauma on the black community, suddenly it's not my problem. Suddenly, right. oh no, I can never do that. Well, it wasn't we my fault. we get gaslit into saying into that it's not real. Right. Like, that's the biggest thing. And, mm. and I don't know who said it, but somebody said to being black in America is to be constantly gaslit. You're always told like, oh, that's not real. Or no, that's not, you know, that's not really an issue. Or that was just a joke. Or why are you taking it so seriously? Or this was such a long time ago. Or if black lives matter, then why did it? It's the constant turning around, point, repointing the finger and not taking any accountability or not doing anything to help. Nothing. They're never productive or helpful with the commentary. That's what I've noticed. Huh. So, I mean, how do we, how do you think we kind of continue to move forward, keeping these things in mind that actually brings some potential healing or equity to these conversations on, really on, on a systemic level? Like, you know, maybe I could change as an individual, but I feel like there has to be such a systemic change before we start seeing some real progress. What are your thoughts on that? You know what? One of the biggest things that I'm, such an advocate for, and yes, I'm going to say this on the New Evangelicals podcast, in terms of equity and starting to turn things around, 
One, anybody that is in jail that is a black or brown person for marijuana needs to be released. And they also need to be given a dispensary. That's how I feel. Because white people are millionaires right now because of weed. And there are still people that are in jail for an ounce. And that is absolutely ridiculous. There are, as of last year, there are still 40,000 people incarcerated because of marijuana charges. Wow. That is ridiculous. But if all of those people, which I feel like it's like 86% are black and brown, were given a business, that would start to close the wealth gap for sure. And that's one of the things that just needs to happen. You need to start closing the wealth gap. And that doesn't take anything away from anybody. It's just giving an opportunity to somebody else and letting them move forward, letting them get out of this hole that they're in. If you actually care about poverty, which you know people say that they do, but like I, I'm a little suspect about that. <laughs> but if you actually do care, then we, that's one of the main things I feel needs to happen. I am so adamant about that i'm such a huge advocate for that because it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous you know it's actually a good idea because you're right i mean i i've seen it happen on social media where someone's like we're successful business owners selling what has put millions of black people in jail for and some are still in jail yeah and it's it honestly is crazy i mean when you think about it and you know it's hard to because like in the moment you don't realize like what's happening and then like you read a history book right and you're like oh my god how could they ever allow this thing to happen and i'm convinced that in however long 10 20 30 years from now they're going to look back and say oh my god the mass incarceration rate of black people specifically was was so disproportionate intentionally it was like another, it's another form of a modern day slavery really when you really think mm-hmm. about it it's crazy yeah yeah it's crazy. and another thing it's absolutely crazy like when you really look at the numbers it's yes. i don't see how anybody could be not shocked by it it's crazy when i read the um, book the, the, the new jim crow it blew my mind yeah 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 great 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 read um another thing that I'm very, very passionate about talking about, and we could probably be on this podcast for another hour, but when we're talking about abortion and and pro-life and pro-choice, yes, I'm going to go there right now. One of the main arguments I hear from evangelicals and conservatives is like, well, there are higher abortion rates in the Black community. Wouldn't you want abortion to not be legal because then Black babies wouldn't be killed? Okay. Yes, you are absolutely correct. Abortion is higher in the black community. But every time I ask them why they think that is, they don't have an answer for me. And it's not just because black people wanting to kill their babies, which is what they think, right? You don't want to talk about the mortality rate with black women because they can't actually get good health care because of racism. You don't want to talk about the fact that these children are going to be born into poverty-stricken areas and then just not be set up to have a good life or quality of life whatsoever. If you want abortion to go down in the black community, if you actually care, because again, I'm suspect, Mm. if you actually care then you need to make sure that the environments that they're born into are equitable and actually equal, that the parents can thrive, that the parents have opportunities, that they're helped. But you're not doing that. You're just using race as a way to now benefit you in your argument. So I'm I'm very, very passionate about actual education when it comes to abortion in the Black community because it's not what people think it is. There are heavy reasons for why. Why would somebody want to have birth when their rate of the possibility that they could die because of racism and the lack of good health care. Why would you want to do that? Why? You can't even give me an answer, but you don't want to talk about that aspect of it. The fact that the mortality rate for Black women is so high in comparison to every other race of women in this country. It's terrifying. I had to, I drive 45 minutes to my OBGYN because I wanted to have a black woman and I refused, refused to have anybody else other than a black woman. Refused. I don't know if you read the story about Serena Williams. Serena Williams. Nobody doesn't know who Serena Williams is. She had problems getting help that she needed when she had her baby because they didn't take her seriously. And she had to find someone and say, you need to give me this medicine right now. And they finally did because they knew with Serena Williams, they're going to have a huge freaking lawsuit if anything happened, right? Mm. But not, all, not everybody's at that level. Most people aren't at that level. So they don't even have that authority or that power. She had privilege on her side, right? So we need to talk about those issues if we really want to have that conversation. Yep. Yes, we do. <laughs> no, I'm... I, I'm with you all the way. Thanks I mean, for letting me go off. Of course. No, you're the guest here. You, you run the show. 
You bring up an interesting point that I thought about, and it's when I've heard people similar to what you said, you know, well, uh, abortion is higher in the black community or, well, um, a lot of violent crime happens in the black community, right? More than in white communities. And my next question is, so what are you saying? Are you saying that black people want to kill their children? Like, like, are they more genetically disposed to violence? Is that where you're going with this? Like, think yeah. about, think about oh the, con God. think about the path you're on because we can look back at, at, at how, uh, how science has been used as a weapon for, for racist garbage, not proven science, but bad science, right? So you're either saying that, 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 that the black community, right, is more prone to violence genetically, or they're just lazier genetically, or there are external forces beyond their control that are, are pushing them into places that give these outcomes. Mm -hmm. Right, but, and, but they don't think that far. But of really, that's where you're headed, right? Like you said, because what's the trope? Oh, black women just want to kill their children. They're just less than human. They're just more prone to violence. That yeah. is, that's the road that they're on without even knowing it. But it yes. leads down a very dark, dehumanizing path every time. And history can teach us where it leads. It mm -hmm. leads to to. to what we're a lot of what we're seeing now, unfortunately, like you said, yeah. where where black women are the highest risk, um, you know, of of mortality uh, to, when when they give birth. It's not because they're genetically more disposed to dying when they give birth. You know that that, yeah. that is not the reason. Yeah, you know, there's something yeah. else happening there. So I totally Absolutely. agree. It's funny that you, you bring up that argument of the, the violence, because every time I've heard that, when people say, well, it's, you know, our black people are just more prone to violence, I always say, well, where do you think they learned it from? <laughs> where do you think they learned it from right. and they don't have an answer because i right. obviously don't believe that but like let's say we were quote unquote where did we learn it right go back to history read a history book we were brought here against our will right and then put into these terrible situations where we were beat raped all of these things and you're saying that we're prone to violence why do you think that is if you right. if it's the truth right right where did we learn that from right but they don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> right. But I mean, but again, you know, I think that is like the, that is part of the problem in our society is that we're so rhetoric based. Like there's no, mm -hmm. there's no, there's very little space for like deep nuanced conversations, like the yeah. link between poverty and crime for any demographic of people, not just black Americans. Okay. But same thing with white people when they're more impoverished, their crime rates go up. Heck, I'll tell you what, if I, if I did not, if I was not able to make a real living, I would do whatever I had to do to feed my family. I mean, I thought about it. Absolutely. There's been times before weed was legal. I'm like, you know, like it's just weed. You know, I probably can make a pretty decent living like selling weed. You know, I'm just saying, you know, I'm not killing anyone. It's just weed. But I thought about that before, right? Because yeah. if you don't have ways to provide for your family, you will do whatever you need to do, even Absolutely. if it's not, you know, uh, the quote unquote legal path as society is set up to make it happen. And I yeah. think that, that, that because we're so rhetoric based as a society, we're so used just to hot takes, right? We, we, we are not, we're kind of dumbed down in that way. We're like, we're like we, we can't have a real conversation. Absolutely. You know, the other thing I was going to say is that then back in the back, going back to the black community and, yeah, and yeah. you know, um, giving birth and having children and stuff, you know, they talk about abortion, right? And this goes back to that whole catch-22 thing with the Black community in any situation. So they talk about abortion, but then if they do decide to have the kids, then they just accuse them of mooching off of the government to take care of all of the kids that they have. Like, what do you want these people to do? <laughs> what right. do you want them to do? Right, right. There's no scenario. That, that there's just no scenario that, that they can succeed in whatsoever in their mind. That is, a, oh my, okay, hold on. Let's, for the listeners out there, let's flesh out, let's just make it person A. I don't care if they're white, black, it doesn't matter. Here's, here's, the, here, here's the cycle, right? Let's say person A gets, gets a boyfriend. They're in a community relationship. They have two kids together. They have one more kid and, and, the, and the boy, the man leaves. He's gone. Now mom's mm -hmm. taking care of three kids. This is not uncommon. Right now, mom has to find a job to provide for three kids and also find their childcare because a lot of people don't aren't lucky enough to have their parents around often. Right for for for, for uh, caretakers, this right. is a common scenario. We don't have any paid or any kind of subsidized, um, you know, um, uh, what's the word? Childcare. Yeah, thank you, childcare. Yes. Right, and and also chances of mom getting a high paying job where she can afford to live in America is very low because the average wage is total shit. But if you advocate yeah. for a 
hire a wager or socialist, right? Yeah. So now right. mom has to work two, three jobs to make ends meet, to be able to put food on the table. She relies on government assistance, and now she's labeled by many as a quote-unquote welfare queen, right? Now she's just mooching on the system. She's not working hard enough. But mom also has three kids, right? So all that money is going to, to child care anyway. So how does someone succeed there, right? Because well, you, let, let, we got to finish the scenario, though. Oh, so because ahead. she's working so much, she doesn't get to see her kids as much, which probably causes behavior in school. Yes. Okay. Yes. And then you just keep going. You can, I mean, we can keep going with the scenario. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And so what do we do? Because if, again, if you advocate for better social systems, you're a, you're a socialist, right? Who just wants to give money away to poor, lazy people. That That's the trope anyway, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Or it's just work harder. But I mean, Amazon, one of the biggest employers in America, pays an average of $30,000. That's the average salary for a company that profits a billion dollars a quarter. I yeah. used to work for Apple, okay? Me. In one <laughs> year on my own, I sold over a million dollars in iPhones. Just me. I made wow. $40,000 before insane. taxes and after and before my, my before before paying health care and everything else. OK, though. But Apple profits literally this, this past quarter, they set a record for, for the highest profit like ever in a quarter. It was something like 30 billion dollars they profited. So these companies pay their employees like shit. Right. And then if you advocate for a higher wage, you're a socialist. So what what is single mom to do? And then the response is, well, you got to live with your with you have to live with the consequences. Are you kidding me? Like she didn't yeah. know that 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 baby daddy was going to leave. That wasn't yeah. the plan. So there's no context. There's, there's no nuance. There's no empathy at all. It's the empathy for me that I just like, come on, people. How do you not feel for people in these situations? And why do you not want to help? Especially if you call yourself a freaking Christian. God damn it. Especially I'm all worked up. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what's so, it blows my, Matthew 25, James, true religion, taking care of the orphan and the widow. I mean, the, you know, the quote unquote, the Bible is clear. And evangelicals would rather people literally starve or have access to the minimal amount of help possible, you know, and, and it just, it is so unloving. It, it unless, just it, crazy. you know, unless they're spending thousands of dollars to get sponsored to go to Africa to build a house that they can't even actually live in. Jesus Christ. That's Did you just go there? Did you just go there at 55 minutes into the conversation, Melinda? Are you dropping the overseas mission colonization conversation? <laughs> I couldn't not. I couldn't not. Because, My uh, God. Come on, like, you're right. Uh, like, but seriously, you're, you will literally fly. And that's the other thing. Okay. See, I know. I know. I did it right at the end, but no. I said, Okay, this is my quick little soapbox. What drives me crazy about missions trips, there's so many things. One, obviously, it is modern-day colonization. One. Yeah. Two, if we talk about all the anti-vaxxers and all the Christians that were causing all the drama during 2020, didn't want to get vaccinated. You didn't want to get vaccinated to help your literal neighbor, but you'll get all of the freaking vaccinations to go to Africa to build a house. Like, what? Because you have Freak. to get that Instagram picture of you in all of your whiteness, surrounded by all the little black kids, and just post it on Instagram to be like, oh my God, I went to Rwanda, I went to wherever, and we built them a house, and blah, 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 and we taught them about Jesus. Well, meanwhile, down the street in Compton, in where that's where I live in LA, the Compton's down the street, right? Um, you don't even want to go there to help the inner city kids. I don't. It's it makes absolutely no sense. It makes no sense. Thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars to go to Africa that could be helping people down the street from you. Totally. Totally. So that's that's no, that's my my and we haven't even touched about how global capitalization has plundered Africa. Ugh. I know. I'm just saying. That's a whole other podcast. I, I know. You're right. <laughs> listen, it, listen. I, I, for the record, I blame you for this one, okay? Because I know, you, this you is dropped that bomb. Like I wasn't even ready for it. I was just blindsided. <laughs> but you're right, though. I mean, and again, you try to have the conversations like this in white evangelical spaces. They lose their shit. I'm just being real. I'm just being honest. Like I've Absolutely. been part of the conversation. They can't handle it. Like the term white fragility, it is a real term for a reason because they cannot handle being critiqued. They cannot handle the idea that maybe the people that they associate with and their ancestors have been complicit in mass harm and they have mm -hmm. a responsibility to make that harm right. And they right. just say, no, 
no, I, I, I can't vote for that person. I can't support that policy. Yeah. Hard work, determination, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. That's how you make it in America. They just result they, or they, they, they just uh, re resort back to crazy, you know, Rush Limbaugh talking points yeah. that, that do yeah. nothing in the real world. Nothing. Yeah. There's a quote, and, and I know that we're, we're about to wrap up, but my, my husband shared this with me, and I was like, oh, that is exactly what I feel in evangelicals need to hear. I forget who it's by, but the quote is, the tree that would grow to heaven must send its roots to hell. And I think that it is such a powerful quote in saying that like you have to acknowledge what your roots are, but that you got to send them down there, especially if you're trying to get to heaven, especially if you're trying to get to heaven. And I just think that that quote encompasses this everything right now. Well, now you made me think of another question to ask you. Do you have like five more minutes? <laughs> yes, I know. Absolutely. Well, I, I know that your toddler's sick. The poor my girl. Mom, my I'm... mom, but she, she she has the next best thing. No offense oh. to my husband, but she has my mom. So <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what is it like? You're in an interracial marriage, right? Yeah. What's that been yeah. like for for you and your husband to navigate some of these waters? I mean. Has that been, I'm sure he's grown a lot. I'm sure, you know, what, what, what's that been like? I will say this. I would have never married him if I didn't think that he was on the up and up all of this <laughs> stuff, right? Fair. It just wouldn't have happened, right? <laughs> right, right, um, right, But yeah, I, I definitely think that he has grown a lot. And I mean, he's from Kansas and his, some of his family lives in Texas. And, um, you know, his his parents, I don't want to give too much of his, his no, story, right, but right, right. his parents are divorced and they have very different views, but half of his family is progressive, half of it isn't. And that's just kind of what the situation has been. But we have amazing conversations and I'm really, really grateful that I have a partner that is very open and um, understanding and also of the mindset that he knows he has a black daughter. Like despite her being biracial, she's black, right? Uh, right and so he's right. very aware of what could possibly and potentially happen to her as she grows up, even knowing what, you know, knowing what my background is and my experience. So he's very, very, very letting, um, willing to let me lead in that way and um, always willing to learn. And I'm very, very grateful and appreciative of where he is in his journey, just of racial realization and and listening and believing and he's he's been always been pretty progressive too i mean again i wouldn't have married him if i didn't think that he would be able to handle all of the stuff that i do and but he's so supportive and so great and just i couldn't ask for a better partner honestly all right fair enough i had to ask before we, we, we <laughs> yeah, let you go so absolutely um, where can people find you i know you're all over the place you know you're your blue check mark verified so congrats <laughs> to you so i know you really made the big time so where can yeah. people find you yes yeah, so uh twitter instagram just at melinda hale and on tiktok at melinda hale official or you can go to my website for all of those links melindahale.com and it's m-a-l-y-n-d-a-h-a-l-e Sweet. Well, Melinda, it was honestly great talking to you. Yes, I feel like too. we, you know, discussed so many things. So absolutely, we'll have to do it again. Yes, I would love that. All right, I'll talk to you later on. All right, thanks, Tim. <laughs> 